Matthew chapter 13. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, and we've just one verse of Scripture tonight. We've been thinking about the Mystery Kingdom parables, and uh, we've just one Scripture, verse 33, which brings us to the fourth mystery, the fourth parable. It says this, Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took, and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Well, we've been working our way through this Gospel of Matthew, and we've obviously slowed up a little bit in chapter 13. We've come to this special passage of God's Word dealing with those mystery kingdom parables. And these parables are vitally important to us because they teach us what was to become of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus had been offering the kingdom. He'd come to Israel as their Messiah. He presented himself to them as their king. But by the time you get to chapter 12 of this book, the Pharisees are accusing him of doing miracles in the power of Satan. And in doing that, they commit the unpardonable sin. And uh, then the Lord Jesus begins to speak to them in parables, not in order that they might be converted, but in order that they might be confirmed in their unbelief and that they would uh, indeed have no further opportunity for salvation. Once you've committed the unpardonable sin, then salvation is beyond you. And of course, that is not a sin that is possible to be committed in this day and age in terms of accusing the Lord of uh, conducting miracles by the power of Satan. But nevertheless, uh, that's where the background to this chapter uh, brings us. And when you get into chapter 13, he begins to unfold these parables. And we've seen three of them already. And each one of them has a corrupting element. He talked about the parable of the sower and the seed. And you'll recall that three of the types of ground under which the seed fell were unreceptive. Uh, And then he talked about the wheat and the tares. And there we saw how that Satan would plant false Christians uh, alongside true Christians, those who are, who are counterfeit believers against those who are really believers, and in so doing seek to corrupt the harvest of the Lord. And then last week we thought about the parable of the mustard seed, and we saw how the herb became a tree, and how that the church over the course of time developed into something that it was never intended to be. And uh, we realized that the devil was at work there also. So we come to this fourth parable, the parable of the leaven, read as we did just in one verse. And as before, many preachers will try to put a positive spin on this parable. And they will say, well, now, uh, this parable is telling us how the woman is the church and how she has the leaven, which is the gospel, and she spreads the leaven uh, into, uh, into the world, into the, into, uh, the hearts of men, and uh, the whole thing is expanded, and there's a great expansion of the kingdom of Christ. But that doesn't really hold true in the context of what we've read so far. It doesn't marry up with comparative scriptures, nor does it even marry up with our own experience, because we know that the church 
is not expanding at this very hour as we are in the last days, but actually it's retracting. Uh, fewer and fewer people are coming to Christ, and the church is certainly on the back foot in this age. We're not winning over society. The world is winning over the church, and the church is being suppressed by society. And so in, in this context, the uh, theme of, this par- of these parables so far has been one of opposition uh, to the truth. And that leaven here symbolizes much the same thing. It's not a positive element. It's something malignant. It is something damaging. And so I want to think about this fourth mystery this evening and uh, ask ourselves, what was the Lord actually saying in this fourth parable of the kingdom? And the first thing I want you to see is there was and will be a great degeneration. And that's what leaven represents, a great degeneration. You say, well, what is leaven? Well, leaven is what we refer to as yeast. It's uh, that rising agent that we put into bread or to pastry uh, to lighten it and to, uh, and to cause it to rise. And so when Jesus, of course, was speaking about leaven, he wasn't uh, interested so much in physical bread, but he was concerned about a spiritual truth. Now, you've got to remember that Matthew is writing to Jewish people. Those are his primary readership. His purpose is to present Jesus as the king of the Jews. And so the Jewish people would have had to have twigged when he referenced leaven. They would have thought themselves right away that there was a certain association with that word. And they would have known what the Lord Jesus was speaking of. Now, to make leaven, uh, as some people do, a good thing, the gospel, and to uh, present it as something powerful in that respect, is to contradict Every other passage in Scripture where this figure is used. You see, this is, uh, this is a symbol. This is a, a type that we find right throughout the Word of God. And to a Jewish audience with very, you know, with, uh, with even a, a, the, the, uh, the, the most scant knowledge of the Old Testament, uh, to them, leaven is always going to be a figure of something sinful, of something evil, of something that is far from good. So I want to think tonight about the the first mention of leaven in Scripture, and that's in the book of Genesis. If you want to look in Genesis 19 for a moment, and uh, we'll see that this is actually a negative reference to leaven, uh, but it's an interesting reference. It's the account of Lot and the destruction of Sodom. And uh, we're told there that three holy personages came uh, upon Lot and the two angels came to Sodom that evening and, uh, and Lot seeing them at the gate, he rises to meet them. He bows himself with his face toward the ground and uh, he invites them in for their own safety. Uh, Sodom was a terribly dangerous city. It was no place to be uh, outside in Sodom during the hours of night. And so he brings them into his home and he shows them customary uh, Middle Eastern hospitality. And verse 3 says, And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto his house, and unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and notice, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Now that's interesting. It's interesting that Lot when he was presented with these two holy angels, these two holy heavenly figures, realized that he could not provide them with something with leaven within it. Uh, And so he offered them 
unleavened bread. You know, even then he knew that to present those, uh, those heavenly visitors with that which typified evil would have resulted in them not partaking of it. Now the next mention of leaven is found later on in the next book of our Bible in the book of Exodus in chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And I want you to see how the Jewish people were instructed. And this is, of course, uh, pertaining to the Passover night. And it says in uh, verse 15 in chapter 12 of, uh, of Exodus, in respect to the Passover and its memorial, seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel, literally put to death. It seems like a very extreme response in our minds to a rather, uh, rather uh, light sin as we might perceive it. But God is wanting to underscore a point that leaven is a portrayal of sin, that it pictures that which is cancerous and corrupt and malignant and that which is to be discarded. And so even to this day, Jewish people in their, in their preparation for Passover will go through their homes ceremonially, removing all the leaven out of the house. So they were told to clear their homes of leaven, to purge it out. And then if you go to chapter 34 of Exodus, Exodus chapter 34, and verse 25, and we'll see that leaven was never to be included, never to, be a comp never to accompany any offering that was a blood offering. Uh, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 25, it says, Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, neither shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left unto the morning. So God forbade any leaven to be accompanying any offering that included blood as part of the offering. And uh, in Leviticus chapter 2, and we'll look at this a little bit later, God demanded that leaven be excluded from every offering of the Lord made by fire. So we're starting to build up a little picture here. Leaven isn't portrayed as something positive, something good, something uplifting, the gospel. Quite the opposite. It's seen as something wicked, something to be avoided, something to be refused, something to be rejected, something as sinful and evil. So coming back to Matthew chapter 13 uh, and coming back to the New Testament, we discover that every mention of leaven portrays it in the New Testament as something emblematic of sin. Now, let's go to Matthew 16 for a moment. Matthew chapter 16. And look at verse 6. For here the Lord Jesus speaks about the leaven of the Pharisees. And he says this, Then Jesus said unto them, verse 6, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Verse 11. He says, How is it that you do not understand that I speak not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine. Now notice this. Doctrine is teaching. But of the doctrine of the Pharisees 
and of the Sadducees. Now, uh, let's think first of all about the leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious fundamental group in Jesus' day. They were fundamentalist Jews. We might equate them perhaps today with the Orthodox Jews. Uh, they had all kinds, of ro- all kinds of rules and all kinds of uh, ways in which they separated themselves from society and were giving the, uh, giving the presentation that they were holier than others. But of course they were legalists and the, uh, the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is really a rebuke of their legalism and their belief that by maintaining a certain religious standard they could make it into heaven. And, and so Jesus scathing of them In fact, we get to Matthew chapter 23. He absolutely tears them apart. And he says that you ought to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. But notice he also spoke there about the leaven of the Sadducees. Well, what's the leaven of the Sadducees? What was their doctrine? Well, they weren't the religious fundamentalists. You see, the Pharisees held to the letter of the law. And they went beyond even the letter of the law. Uh, But the Sadducees went the other way. They were the religious liberals of the day. And they denied any concept of resurrection. They denied the existence of angels. They denied a, a whole host of things. They didn't believe in an afterlife. So if the Pharisees were the fundamentalists of their day, the Sadducees were the liberals of their day. And so Jesus taught that theological liberalism is just as evil and just as dangerous as fundamentalist legalism. Do you hear what I say? Theological liberalism is just as evil as fundamentalist legalism. Now, I am a fundamentalist. Let's be clear about that. You know, I, I'm, I believe that in the fundamental doctrines of the Bible. But I do not for one moment want you to consider that to be a fundamentalist, you have to subject yourself to certain legalities and certain rules and certain standards. And it's do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. No, 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 that's not it at all. And when you do that, if you behave that way, you enter into the leaven of the Pharisees. But of course, if you end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater and go the other way, you end up being involved in the leaven of the Sadducees. Jesus spoke about another kind of leaven in Mark chapter 8, if you want to look there for a moment. Mark chapter 8 and verse 15. Mark chapter 8 and verse 15. Here again he references the leaven of the Pharisees, and we've spoken about that already. But he adds a third kind of leaven. Verse 15 of Mark chapter 8, it says, He charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and... Of the leaven of Herod. Now, what in the world is the leaven of Herod? Well, if we go back up to verse 11 and 12, we might get some idea. It says, And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? 
Verily I say unto you, there shall be no sign given unto this generation. People today always are looking for a sign. They want a sign from God. Well, let's have a look at the Gospel of Luke for a moment and chapter 23 and see why the Lord Jesus labeled this particular leaven, not just the leaven of the Pharisees, who were also sign seekers, but the leaven of Herod. And here we have the Lord Jesus now being sent from Pilate uh, to Herod in his trial. And he uh, comes into uh, Herod's court and it says in verse 7, As soon as he, Pilate, knew that he, Jesus, belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. Why was he glad? For he was desirous to see him of a long season. Why? Because he had heard many things of him. And he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. You see, here was Herod's problem. Herod was a sign seeker. He wanted Jesus to do something rather, you know, turn, turn stone into bread or, or uh, raise somebody from the dead or heal somebody or do something that might impress him. And he sought for a sign. And Jesus described that as the hallmark, not of a spiritual generation, but of an evil and adulterous generation. Later on, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we encounter another kind of leaven. Uh, this time it's the Apostle Paul who draws our attention to this leaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, verse 1, he talks about a man who has committed a terrible act of sin, of incest, and uh, of immorality. And he says this to this church, it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. What a wicked uh, thing for a person to do. And he says, And ye, the church, are puffed up, but have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this thing may be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. So this is a, a church that was corrupted by a scandalous affair, by uh, the, the worst kind of conduct, and by sleazy gossip that surrounded that conduct. And Paul refers to that as leaven. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And then in the next uh, verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 7 and 8, he says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, for as you're unleavened, Referring to the Passover, even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So there's another kind of leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, the leaven of insincerity and hypocrisy. And this church was rebuked in that regard. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. We've read it from Genesis all the way through to Corinthians. And not one time is leaven spoken of positively. Not once. 
For the life of me, I cannot figure out why there are preachers who will stand behind their pulpit and try to convince their congregations that leaven is a good thing, that it's the gospel. It's anything but the gospel. It's the antitype of the gospel. It's the very opposite of the gospel. And so it's not something good. You know, it says the gospel is really to do violence to the scriptures and to fly in the face of the whole tenor of the writings and, re- uh, and scriptures we've just read. So leaven doesn't picture regeneration. It pictures degeneration. There's a great degeneration coming, Jesus says. And then if you go back to Matthew 13, you'll see the second element of this parable, the woman. He says the kingdom of heaven, verse 33, is like unto leaven, which a woman took. Which a woman took. Now, if leaven is a great degeneration, the woman is a great deception. Now, it's very easy, and you know, I would say it's even lazy to say that the woman represents the church. I mean, Granted, the church is the bride of Christ and is portrayed in in a feminine figure. But to just very lazily take that truth and apply it to this parable without thinking about everything else this parable is presenting us with, I think is, is really woeful. And so rather than spreading the gospel among the nations, this woman is up to no good. She's up to mischief. Now, now bearing in mind that she is preparing a meal offering. That's what's going on here. She's preparing a meal as an offering. And such being the case, her actions are in the minds of her Jewish listeners totally reprehensible. Any right-thinking Jew hearing these words or reading this passage would be aghast at this lady's behavior. Notice what this woman did. The Lord said she took... The leaven, the kingdom of heaven is like unto uh, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and she hid it in three measures of meal. She took the leaven and she deliberately hid it in the meal. She's acting dishonestly. She's acting deceitfully. She's being underhanded. She's deliberately introduced into the offering a foreign and corrupting element. She's doing the very thing that the Word of God absolutely forbids her from doing. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 2, and I mentioned this earlier on. Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 11. And notice the commandment that is given in this verse. She is doing the very thing that the word of God says one must not do. Notice what the scripture says, Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 11. No meat offering which you shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. Notice that not only did she do something the Bible forbid her to do, but by inference she did not do something that she ought to have done. She left oil out of her offering. Look in chapter 2 and verse 1. And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, 
His offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. So this woman, in some sense, added something to the offering that should never have been there, and she left something out of the offering that ought to have been there. Nine times in that chapter it said that oil is a necessary ingredient to a meal offering. So it's not like it's something she might have missed. It's not like something that she skipped over and, uh, and you know, just one of those little words that she happened to bypass. No, if you, were, if you were reading that passage and you were studying it with a view to actually preparing a meal offering, you couldn't have missed oil. Nine times the Bible speaks about oil. Now, what is this woman portraying? Well, I'm convinced she portrays false religion. You see, you think about it. You think about the progress of these parables. You think about the wheat and the tares, the tares being false believers. You think about the, the mustard seed and how it becomes a herb becomes a tree. You have a false church. And now we have a false message. There's somebody coming now at us with another gospel, a, a gospel which is not another. You say, well, pastor, how do you get this woman portraying false religion? Well, this again is an analogy that is used right throughout the scriptures. We're not going to take the time, but if you go into the Old Testament, you can read about Jezebel and Athelia and how they sought to usurp the throne of Israel. In Zechariah chapter 5, you read about a, a woman who portrays the idolatry of Babylon and is exiled from the land. In the New Testament, you come into Revelation chapter 2, and you have Jezebel in the church of Thyatira, who is uh, corrupting that church with false teaching and carnal behavior. And of course, you get into Revelation 17, where we were last Sunday evening, and what do you find? You find the great whore giving birth to harlot churches. You find the whole thing is corrupting. But each time, the portrayal of that corruption is presented to us in the form of a woman. The woman is a corrupting influence who permeates the kingdom with false teaching. So you have a great degeneration, leaven, and you have a great deception, the woman. Now I want you to show you one more thing, a great, a great desecration. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 33, and let's read the entire verse together. It's not very long, obviously. One verse, another parable, speak ye unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, something corrupting and degenerative, which a woman, representing false teaching, hid, took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Now you say, well, why three measures of meal? Well, three measures of meal to ancient Jews was like two liters of milk to you and I. It was an everyday purchase. It was a common, a common purchase, a familiar measure. And so to say three, uh, three measures of meal, uh, it just didn't, you know, that was just everyday, an everyday thing. It was the amount of meal that a Jew would have commonly uh, secured uh, to perform the meal offerings in the temple. With only one exception, the meal offerings were to be unleavened. And I want to show you the one exception. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 deals with the uh, feasts of the Lord. 
and uh, speaks about uh, each feast in turn in, in regard to the uh, outworkings of the history of Israel. It's a wonderful prophetic chapter. But I want you to go to, with me to verse 17. Verse 17, and, and this particular verse sits in that section that's dealing with the uh, Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And notice verse 17, it says, You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They, notice, they shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. Now, that's the only place in which leaven is included in an offering. And it's a wave offering. You say, well, what is a wave offering? It's just that. Somebody made two loaves and they stood outside and they waved it before the Lord. They waved it in the, in the presence of the Lord. That's all they did with it. And so this verse is detailing the offering of the Feast of Weeks, or if you like, the Feast of Pentecost. And the Feast of Pentecost is a foreshadowing of the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. The two loaves here represent the two, uh, the two, uh, the two elements that comprise the church, the Jew and the Gentile. So just as the old sin nature resides, even in those who are born again, believers are represented in the church as still having an element of corruption within us. See, we still battle with sin, don't we? There's still leaven in us. But bread also represents the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of Christ's body. So here's how this thing works. And I want you to listen really carefully and you'll get a handle on this. When bread represents Christ in any way, his person or his work on the cross, it is always unleavened. That's why we use unleavened bread at the Lord's table on Sunday mornings. It's not just a, a quirk. It's not just something we came up with. We did it because it's, it is a scriptural presentation of Christ. And so I appreciate other churches may do it differently, and I'm not going to condemn them for that. But I'm just saying that's how we do it, and that's why we do it the way we do it. But when, the, when bread represents the person and work of Christ in Scripture, it was always unleavened. It was always pure. But when it typifies his people, Jews or Gentiles, it had to be leavened. Now what's interesting here is this. This woman took that which was representing Christ. That which was a picture of his broken body. And she took three measures of meal and she added to it the leaven. Not only did she add to it the leaven, but she took from it by neglecting the addition of the oil. Oil in Scripture is always pictorial of the Spirit of God. In other words, what you see here in this particular parable is a corruption, <coughs> excuse me, a corruption of the doctrine of Christ. Here is a woman who is taking from and adding to the doctrine of Christ. That's how the age unfolds. As the further and further we get away from the time of Christ, away from the life of Christ, away from the death and resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ, the longer time goes on, the further we travel down that road toward the second coming of Christ, well, friends, the Lord Jesus is less and less regarded in the churches. 
And that's what you're reading in this particular parable. You see, this is not an expansion of the, of the church by means of gospel preaching, but rather what it is is a proliferation of apostasy and falsehood, particularly as it concerns the doctrine of Christ. Did you know that there are over 500 different cults operating in the United Kingdom today, and all those cults, without exception, deny the biblical teaching of the deity of Christ or of the sufficiency of Christ's offering as a sacrifice for sin? Now look with me in 1 John, 1 John, if you will, in chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2. Now I'm going the long way around for a shortcut here. I'll get to the heart of what I want to say in just a moment. But look in 1 John, chapter 2. And I want you to read verse 22. And notice what it says in verse 22. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. Notice who is Antichrist or who, who has the spirit of Antichrist. He that denies Jesus is the Christ. If you turn to the next book, Second John, and, uh, and to verse 9 of that uh, chapter, of chapter 1 of Second John, and uh, verse 9, it says, Whosoever transgresseth, and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, in the teaching of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now let me tease that out a little bit because we have people in our society who will come from time to time and they may knock on your door and they'll be from the local kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses and they will tell you that Jesus was not God, that Jesus is a servant of Jehovah, that he's just another man uh, and they will try to convince you that the Trinity and the deity of Christ is a falsehood. The Bible says if such a person comes to your door that you're not to bid him God's speed. That is, you're not to say, well, the Lord bless you. Nor indeed are you to invite him into your house. Now, that doesn't mean you can't bring him in to witness to him, but it means you're not to allow him any hospitality. You're not to help him along the way. That's the idea. You know, I witnessed to a Jehovah's Witness uh, for the best part of a year in my house. He came into my house every Sunday afternoon for the best part of a year. Do you know, not once in that whole time did I give him a cup of tea. Not once. I witnessed to him for the entire duration. When the witness was done, he went out. I never once helped him. I never once said to him, would you like a glass of water? I didn't say it's a cold day, would you like a drink of tea? I never offered him even a dog biscuit. I was going to bid him Godspeed. 
And the Mormon, he comes to your door and he'll knock your door with his, you know, his lovely American twine. You know, young Mormons are, they send all the handsome young Mormons to Europe. You know that? They leave the ugly ones in America. So someday some handsome young man may appear in your doorstep with a lovely Utah twine and convince you he's from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he too will deny the doctrine of Christ. He too will deny the deity of Christ. He will tell you that Jesus is Satan's brother. The Jehovah's Witness will tell you that Jesus is the Archangel Michael. The Mormon tells you he's, he's Satan's brother. And both groups and, and all those other cults besides, whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Christian Science, Seventh-day Adventism, you go through the various lists of cults and isms, you'll find they all deny the truth of the doctrine of Christ in some way. So when you hear someone say that Jesus was not God, or as we're now hearing more and more often, Jesus did not actually exist in history, or that Jesus was a good man, just misunderstood, or that Jesus was just a teacher, or just a prophet, or only a man, and on it goes. Understand what you're listening to is the voice of the Spirit of Antichrist. What you're listening to is three measures of meal slipped into the offering so as to take away from the person of Christ. And also you find that if you enter into that doctrine, the oil has also been removed because an attack upon the person of Christ is an attack upon the spirit of Christ. And understand... When clergymen come and they deny the virgin birth or they say, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He only fainted and was revived in the tomb by the cool air. Or they say, well, yes, I believe in the resurrection, but Jesus has just arisen in the hearts of those who believe on him. Understand, that's the woman and the leaven at work. Friends, there are many things you can be wrong about in this life, but Jesus is not one of them. There are many things that really don't matter at all. Things that you could be completely wired up about. There's things that you may get 100% wrong and it make no substantial difference to your life whatsoever. But my friends, listen to me. The one thing you cannot afford to get wrong is Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he did for you. You cannot afford to get that wrong. You see, all eternity hinges upon him and what you do with him. You need to grasp the fact that Jesus isn't just anybody. That he's not just a, a figure from the distance, distant past and history. That he's not just somebody who was hanging out on earth 
thousands of years ago and has no consequence to me living in 2024. You've got to understand he's the second person of the Godhead, that he is one with the Father, that he is the ancient of days. What did Jesus say? John 14, 9. He that hath seen me, what? Hath seen the Father. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. I mean, that's quite a statement, isn't it? What did he say to the Pharisees? He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I don't want to get too technical, but that's I am as the Tetragrammaton, the name of Jehovah in the Old Testament. He says, before Abraham was, I existed as Jehovah, the eternal God of the Jewish people. Remember the night they came to arrest him? He says, who seek you? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. Actually, the he is italicized in the King James Version. He just said, I am. And the verse says, and they went backward and fell. Now, be careful here. It didn't say they fell backwards. That's what the charismatics would have you believe. Somebody came along and put their hand on, his head, on your head and pushed you backwards and say, that's what happened when Jesus was arrested. That's not what happened when Jesus was arrested. Here's what happened. They came to arrest him. Who seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am. What happens? The power of his words pushes them back and he compels them to fall on their faces and worship him before he allows them to arrest him. That's what happened. He says, I want you to know no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down And I have the power to take it up again. You're not going to put a single finger on me till you realize just who I am. All eternity hinges upon him. You need to understand he is your creator. That he made you and me and everything there is that we see all around us by the word of his mouth in six literal days. The Bible says all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. You need to know that he is your sustainer. That in him you live and move and have your being. I want you to know that when you woke up this morning and took your first conscious breath, that Jesus Christ gave you that breath. I want you to know that. The Bible says he's before all things and by him all things consist. In other words, by him everything is held together. 
Scientists don't understand that. They don't understand how the molecules within the atom are not repelled so that everything explodes. But the Bible says, by him, everything is held together. He's the glue. You need to know that not only is he your creator and your sustainer, he's also your redeemer. Paul says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He left heaven for earth, yielded his back to the cross of Calvary, and laid down his life, listen to me, for you. For you. You and all your sin. You and all your rebellion. You and all your shame and your waywardness and your wickedness. You and all your resistance to the truth of God's word. He laid down his life for you. And you need to know that he bore in his own person your sins upon the cross. Listen to what the Bible says. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Here's what he took. He took all your wrong on his own person. He who was holy, he who was harmless, He who was separate from sinners. He who was distinct from all humanity. He who had no ability to sin took upon himself in his own person your sin and bore it on a tree. He was crucified in your place. Died on your behalf. Paid your debt. Bore your burden. And the Bible says that the blood he shed upon that cross, the blood he shed there is your only hope of spiritual cleansing and eternal life. For scripture reads that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. And you need to realize that he physically arose from the dead on the third day. Now, I know there's some woolly-minded clerics, Reverend Toogood, who'll come along with a big cross around his neck and a bunch of theological degrees behind his name, and he'll listen to preaching like this, and he'll go, no, 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 that's not it at all. Jesus rose in our hearts. You know where that fellow's going? Straight to hell. He didn't just rise in our hearts. The Bible says, here's the gospel. Paul declares it. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. How that Christ died according to the scriptures. He physically died. How that he was buried. He physically was buried. And how he rose again the third day. Physically. According to the scriptures. I'm preaching to you tonight about the only person in all of history who by his own power raised himself from the dead. And you need to know 
that someday he's coming back again. He's coming back again. He's coming to judge this world in righteousness. And you need to be ready for that moment. The Bible says, behold, I come quickly. The Lord Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give to every man according to his work, as his work shall be. You see, the doctrine of Christ isn't insignificant. It isn't secondary. It isn't an incidental. It's a fundamental. You know, when Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who tried Jesus, was weighing up his options at the trial of Christ, he asked himself a great question. He said this, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called the Christ? Unfortunately, Pilate came up with the wrong answer to that question, and he nailed him with Roman authority to a cross. But tonight, dear friend, you're faced with the same conundrum. You see, you can believe what the Bible says about Jesus, or you can believe what the world says about Jesus. You can believe what the gospel teaches about Jesus, or you can accept what false religion says about Jesus. You can take the truth of, of some gospel preacher such as myself about Jesus, or you can rely on some deadhead cleric and what he has to say about Jesus outside of the Scriptures. But here's the one thing I want you to get and for you to be clear about. You will have to do something with Jesus. You're going to do something with him. You'll not be able to avoid him forever. You can either accept him or reject him. You can either believe in him or not believe upon him. You can be for him or you can be against him. But you cannot be indifferent to him. And you may not sit on the fence concerning him. The songwriter put it this way. Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaneth the sudden call. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Friend, I want to encourage you tonight not to fall for the lie of the woman hiding a little leaven in the meal offering, but to come to Christ, believe upon him in truth, and be saved for his glory. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.